1: This is Gardening with the RHS. I'm Guy Barter. Have you ever wondered why nettles sting? On today's show, passionate botanist Chris Farragut explains some surprising ways plants defend themselves
2: against predators. They have modified hairs, which are like glassy needles. They're very, very sharp. And if you brush up against them, they break the skin and they release all of these toxins.
1: We'll also be foraging for food with green-thumbed activist Indy Srinath.
3: When you're out looking for plants and they all kind of start to look alike, and then you start seeing these wild mushrooms of different colors and shapes and sizes and smells, they're pretty distracting and engaging.
1: We have some extraordinary stories from the green world coming up as well. So let's get gardening. Indy Sreenath is an LA-based forager with a focus on mushrooms, a passion that began with a stroll in the forest.
3: I began foraging about seven years ago when I was studying herbalism in school. And a lot of studying herbalism is plant identification. So we spent a lot of time just outside in the woods learning how to identify different plants From there, I kind of became specifically interested in foraging for mushrooms because when you're out looking for plants and they all kind of start to look alike and then you start seeing these wild mushrooms of different colors and shapes and sizes and smells, they're pretty distracting and engaging. So that's kind of how I began foraging. A lot of my early memories of foraging were kind of accidental so i lived in a in a very mountainous region for a long time that had a lot of waterfalls and that was a big activity on the weekends is going to waterfalls and swimming i was always the one who was going with a group of friends and going for a hike and On the way to these waterfalls, looking off and remembering everything that I'd read about foraging and mushrooms and edible mushrooms and seeing some off in the distance and then just totally forgetting to hang out with my friends and forgetting about the waterfall hike that we were doing and just running off into the wild and collecting a bunch of wild mushrooms and spending time off by myself. The weirdest thing that I've ever found foraging would definitely be a type of entomopathogenic mushroom called Cordyceps militaris. It's a mushroom or fungus that takes over an insect. So these mushrooms are very strange in that the ones that I found were taking over the pupae of a moth. So when moths go underground and they're in the pupa state, they became infected with this cordyceps mushroom. And so it's pretty much growing out of the body of an insect. You can actually harvest that bit and tincture it or powder it and consume it. And it gives you a lot of energy and stamina. So I think that's a pretty strange one to find. And they're very, very small, so they're pretty difficult to find. So it was also exciting in that regard. In order to get into foraging and learn how to identify plants, it's great to just start noticing very basic things about the plants around you. So instead of just walking past a tree and just looking at it, you know, notice the way its leaves are and start learning some of these terms that we use to describe leaves, like are the leaves ovate? Are they oval shaped? Are they lobed? Do they have, you know, kind of antler looking shapes to them and just really honing into those details. And and that'll help give you a sense of connection with some of these plants and help you become a better forager. The same in when you're looking at mushrooms, you know, I never advocate for folks picking mushrooms and eating them. Unless you're a very experienced person, but looking at them. So if you see a wild mushroom, noticing a few things about it, like flipping it over and seeing does it have gills on the underside? So does it have these little flaps that are called gills, or is it smooth and it has like a small porous surface? So noticing those details will really help you become more attuned, have a more keen eye for foraging. For me, foraging is really important because wild food has a different energy that it gives off. It definitely does have a different potency than a lot of the foods that you'll find in the store. So foraged foods feel very much alive. They're the foods that would naturally grow in your own environment. So they're more likely to have nutrients and minerals and bioavailable vitamins that you might need because they're the food that is coming directly from your own environment, if that makes sense. The activity of foraging itself, besides just the great purpose of consuming the food, but the activity itself is very therapeutic and it's a nice exercise of getting outdoors and connecting with your environment, tuning into something that's kind of greater than you and, you know, makes you feel more of a part of the larger picture. I would say if someone is kind of skeptical about foraging or, you know, is a little bit timid about spending time identifying plants and mushrooms and that sort of thing, I would say that just spending time outside in nature and just observing and kind of using that as um, a mindfulness exercise is pretty important because... As we've seen species go extinct within our lifetime, we know that nature is very ephemeral and it might not be here forever. So just getting out and enjoying looking at plants and mushrooms and looking at them a bit deeper and noticing some of their different characteristics can provide a sense of calmness. So... It doesn't need to be about going out in the woods and like living off the land and like shooting a wild boar or something. It can be very simple and therapeutic and mindful.
1: I really enjoyed hearing about Indy's journey into foraging. I like a little blackberrying myself, and if I see mushrooms and puffballs, well, why not? Things that you find in the wild and cost you nothing are always an attractive thing. Browsing through Nature's Buffet can be a lot of fun, but as Indy suggested there, eating wild mushrooms can be risky and must only be done by experienced foragers. A major reason for that is that some can be very poisonous and dangerous for us to eat, and it's this that we want to talk about next. Poisons, fawns and irritants are all aspects of plant defence. A way for some greenery to stay alive and ward off nasty predators. But how does it all work? I know someone who can help explain all.
2: Welcome to Botany Corner. I am Chris Thurgood and I'm a botanist at the University of Oxford Botanic Garden. And I'm going to be talking about all the sneaky ways in which plants defend themselves... Plants have evolved this armour to protect their leaves from hungry mouths. And some of them are quite familiar, so we're all very um, aware of stinging nettles. And these are the plants that really defend themselves aggressively. They have modified hairs, which are like glassy needles. They're very, very sharp. And if you brush up against them, they break the skin... And they release all of these toxins, including histamine and serotonin and choline and all sorts of other nasty chemicals that can really bring you up in in a horrible rash. And some of its distant relatives that grow in Australia can actually cause a really severe rash that can last for several days. So they're really quite nasty. Lots of plants have evolved all sorts of impenetrable barriers like bark and waxy layers to keep animals out. They want to protect their leaves and stems from hungry mouths. And some of them have evolved vicious thorns and spines. And I'm thinking about cacti. Now, spines have evolved as a sort of modified leaf. So if we think of typical cacti and other succulents, They have stems, but typically they don't have leaves. Instead, they have these modified spines. And these keep animals out because they're fearsome. They can really cause you some harm. So that's a little bit about the spiny plants, but one of the most widespread defence mechanisms is chemical, and it can be really sophisticated. So I'm thinking about poisonous plants, and when we think of the plants and the wildflowers in the British countryside, we think of them as quite genteel and pretty, but there are actually a surprisingly large amount of poisonous plants that grow in the wild, and also the ones that we grow in our gardens. Some of them can cause mild discomfort, but some of them really are quite dangerous and and you shouldn't eat them because they can kill. So one of the plants that's particularly poisonous that will be familiar to all gardeners is the foxglove, digitalis. And this actually yields a drug called digoxin, um, which is a a remedy for heart arrhythmias. So this plant has possibly saved more lives than its cost because of the drugs that we can um, extract from it. One of the most poisonous plants that you will find in the British countryside is deadly nightshade. It's extremely toxic. It's often confused for black nightshade, which is quite a common plant that grows as a weed in our gardens, and also woody nightshade, which has red berries. The deadly nightshade is a little rarer, And it often grows on chalky soils, particularly in the south of Britain. And it has sort of dull liver-coloured flowers and shiny black berries. And it really is toxic. So how it works is it produces these toxins that disrupt the parasympathetic nervous system. So this is the body's ability to regulate the involuntary things that we do, like sweating, breathing, and heart rate. And the chemicals that this plant is packed full of really disrupt that, so it's a very dangerous plant. Now, I don't want the listeners to be too scared of these plants because generally people aren't going to go around eating these wildflowers and many of them taste so horrible or give a burning sensation in your mouth if you were to try to eat them, you'd very quickly spit them out. However, these plants are quite dangerous and so we shouldn't be going around eating plants if we don't know what they are.
1: Chris Farragut. The fact that plants can nourish as well as kill you is pretty incredible. It's the dose that makes the poison. This summer, there have been some bitter courgettes around. Some suspect seed got on the market, and some people have been rather ill after eating the bitter courgettes. If you taste the slightest bit of bitterness in a courgette or a squash, discard it. Other things are also poisonous. You wouldn't believe that potatoes are one of the most poisonous plants. If your potatoes produce little tomato-like fruits, don't under any circumstances make chutney. They could make you quite ill. Even the humble celery can cause harm. The sap, if it gets on your skin on a sunny day, can cause a burn. We love hearing from gardeners and designers across the country about their favourite plants.
4: My name is Patty Barron. I'm a gardening writer, a passionate gardener. My great love is prostrate rosemary. My name is Danny Clark, and I like the Dixonia Antarctica,
1: otherwise known as the tree fern.
4: Hello, I'm Kirsty Ward from My Little Allotment.
3: My plant love story it has to be gooseberries. My name's Catherine Pottsides, and I'm the head of show's development for the RHS, and the plant that I love
2: is thyme.
1: And today's show is no different let's hear all about garden designer Juliet Sargent's favourite plant.
4: Its Latin name is Hebe parviflora angustifolia. And the reason I like this plant is not so much for its looks, because it's pretty plain and you, you could easily walk past it without noticing it. But as a garden designer, I'm always on the lookout for plants that will grow in difficult places and the hebe parviflora has got me out of many problems in the past because it will grow really anywhere it's particularly good for shade and dry shade at that which is one of the most difficult and most plants that work okay in shade are dark green and that means that your sort of shady dark spot gets even darker because all the foliage is dark 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 Um, Whereas the hebe parviflora has almost bamboo-like mid-green leaves and a very sort of light, airy character to it. And if you're lucky, it might flower a little with white flowers, but they're not the most important thing about it. And it's evergreen. So a light, airy, fresh green, evergreen plant that grows in shade. It's brilliant. Mm -hmm. I first discovered this Hebe when I was actually doing some homework, going round nurseries, looking at the plants and looking for new plants and learning about them. In those days, there was no such thing as sort of everybody carrying a mobile phone and easy photos. So I used to take slide photos. That ages me, doesn't it? I used to go around the nurseries taking slide photos of all the plants that I wanted to know more about, writing notes from, because of course most of the nurseries give you a little spiel about the plants, so you could write down the notes. And that's a brilliant way of learning about plants. And that's how I first discovered this brilliant Hebe. I have several, several in my garden because my garden is one of the most difficult gardens to garden I've ever come across because we're near to the sea. So we have the salt winds. It's shady because we've got lots of sycamores, which um, are all protected. So I can't chop them down even if I wanted to. And it has very shallow, chalky soil. So almost everything that could go wrong with a garden has gone wrong in my garden. So these hebes are very useful. So this hebe is really easy to grow, but it's not that easy to find. So I get mine from a brilliant nursery in Sussex called Architectural Plants. They actually grow them clipped. They clip them into a sort of ball, but it doesn't have to be grown like that. You can let it go shaggy in its natural form, or you can clip it into balls, or you can even clip it into quite a formal hedge. I've never known such a versatile plant.
1: Juliet Sargent Hebe are tough, robust, reliable plants maybe a teeny bit frost sensitive Mrs Sargent lives on the south coast where frost and cold isn't too much of a problem but even here in the chilly Thames Valley I can grow hebes in my garden and they're very useful for those hot, dry spots and they flower beautifully at this time of year In fact, if you can find a non-flowering shoot at this season it's exactly the right time to take semi-ripe cuttings if you want to learn more on anything in today's show, head to rhs.org.uk slash podcast. We'll be back next week with more gardening tips, tricks and insights. But until then, it's goodbye from me, Guy Barter.